This is Father Patrick Briscoe. <laughs> this is Father Joseph Anthony Cress. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Father Joseph Anthony. We're back at it. We're back at it. Love it. I mean, we're really back at it now because we're moving quickly through the fall semester. I mean, everything is Oats. up and running at this mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite parts about being a chaplain in the fall? Chaplain in the fall. Well, I love being a chaplain in the fall because I love being in central Virginia in the fall. Mm. Uh, it is beautiful. But I, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm pretty stereotypical American in this sense. What I love most about the fall is college football. Uh, yeah, Let's go. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, there, there's just something beautiful uh, about the college football season, uh, the excitement and um, the kind of just school spirit that takes place. And especially because when you see your first year students come in, they're like they're all ready to go. And this is why, like, I, I really, really love being at the University of Virginia. Shout out uh, Wahoos, Wahoo Wah, baby. Um we have a great athletic program. Like, you know, we got many national championships behind us, ACC championships and um, all of those fun things. Subtle, I know. Um, but it creates a, a, a sense of unity within the environment. I right. remember when we won the na- uh, basketball national championship, uh, when our boys went to the College World Series, when our men won the men's tennis national championship, our girls are having a, a dynasty in the ACC rowing. I think they've won uh, 14 out of the last 15 national or ACC championships. There's a sense of unity that the entire student body comes, comes in circles around and it starts to help them identify together, breaks them out of their kind of individuality. It helps them to be recognized that they're part of something greater than just themselves. Now at the end of the day, it's just sports, you know, and it's a game mm-hmm. and all of these things, but it does actually provide a great kind of, um, unifying uh, principle and unifying event for those associated with it. And there's nothing more kind of like intense in that than college football season. So going to the football games, you know, we're very close proximity to the stadium, the church and the priory is. So doing some tailgating, going in the student section and those types of things and encountering the students in that place, meeting them where they are, um, then immediately uh, translates over to meeting them on Sundays after mass and those types of things. Um, So that's something I really, really love. And I love seeing the first year students come in and seeing them start to take their faith, take their life on as themselves. Uh, I believe, I think it was Father Walter, our pastor uh, down in Charlottesville said the beautiful thing about the undergraduate experience is that these students are starting to learn both autonomy and community at the same mm, time. Right. They're right. pursuing both of those at the same time. And so you can enter into that mix and help lead them. And especially for our first year students, it's, it's, it's learning. You're getting thrown into the deep end without any floaties on. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was struck by when I was down there at the game with you last year. Yeah. Not, not the floaty or the deep end part, but, <laughs> but the sense of community, right? As we walked around, we greeted people in their tailgates, checked in with alumni, checked mm-hmm. in with parents, checked in with the current students, and it was clear that you were throughout the game keeping tabs on the flock. The shepherd oh, yeah. was, oh, yeah. you know, scouting out, seeing where all the sheep are, noting mm-hmm. uh, who was with whom. We might say at Ooh, the game, yes. yeah. uh, mm-hmm. other no, noting uh, noting other aspects of student life, um, and and y- y- putting all of that in the service of building up the community and the, yeah. the chaplaincy at large. So 
That was, that was definitely my experience. Plus a sick sunburn. Yeah. You got a good um, one. That was, <laughs> that was, that was, that was really great. Um, which shame on me. I should know being an adult, uh, to put on sunscreen yeah. or and you're Irish hat. too. Yeah. So that doesn't help. But alas and alack. Yeah. So we're not going to talk about college football this entire episode. Not yet. Yeah. No, we're, we're continuing a series that we've done a, f- uh, a few thinkers on at this point, mm-hmm. because part of part of what we want to continue to share on the podcast is um, to be in conversation with contemporary spiritual sources. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think one of the temptations in Catholic life is to believe that the only good things are from the past. Yep. The, only, the only good resources we have are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from ages past. And then w- when we're constantly figuring out how to be in dialogue with those sources. And it's true that the spiritual lights of the past do continue to illuminate the horizons of our present life. And we are eager to be in conversation yes. with those sources, but we're yes. also not afraid uh, to take advantage of the great minds and the saintly minds that are among us today. And one of those, I think, is certainly Father Haggerty. So mm-hmm. for someone who's never heard of Father Haggerty, um, could you introduce him? Yeah, your, your point about like looking at the past, but also that pushes us to look into our proximity is, is super important. This is one of the things that I think is a, a fundamental understanding of the spiritual life um, as Catholics is that it's the same spirit that moves. Right. It, it, the, the spirit that moved throughout the centuries in the antiquity in the middle ages and all the way, uh, you know, throughout all the generations is the same spirit that's inspiring saints today. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. You know, it's not just, just because it's ancient, just because it's old doesn't make it better. Like, because we're looking at one spirit, the same spirit that inspired those authors are inspiring saints today as well. And so when we look at this contemporary uh, setup, I think one of the spiritual authors that does rise above uh, is Father Donald Haggerty. He is a priest of the Archdiocese in New York City. And so he was, he's writing from a, a very, you know, contemporary, modern city, urban environment in this sense, which many people are, are thinking, are seeing a big push. I know Father Bonaventure and I uh, have an episode on uh, this kind of push uh, out of the cities into the kind of homesteads and things like that. Is there anything good that could be in the cities? And this is something that Father Donald like is able to pick up on from his life as a Catholic priest in the heart of the largest, like one of the largest cities in the world, one of the most iconic cities, it's New York city, baby. Like this is where it all is. And he's able to say like, no, Jesus is at the heart of this Mm -hmm. and lead people through that. And so I really, really love him because he's drawing from this kind of very intense experience of being at the heart of one of the most major cities of Western society. Uh, and then is seeing how Christ and the spirit move through all of that and opens it up and kind of cracks it open for all of us to understand. Because I think far too many people then write it off immediately and say, it's too busy. It's too hectic. It's, there's no Jesus in there. And he, he decides to go the opposite direction. He decides to kind of sharpen the arrow, sharpen the knife and pierce it, mm. you know? And that's what I really, really love about his, his writings and what he brings to the table. So we've hit a couple tensions, you know, right away, right? So, so we hit uh, the fact that, okay, we don't actually think that uh, all good spiritual authors are dead. Yeah, <laughs> there, there, are, there are authors who are helpful and incredibly talented guides to the spiritual life who are alive. Okay, so we've got that one sorted. You brought up um, now this tension between uh, romanticizing rural life, overly mm-hmm. romanticizing mm-hmm. rural life, and opposing that to 
urban life. So now, now we've just insisted, no, it is actually possible to pursue holiness and to have a life of prayer, a vibrant life of prayer in right. the city. So you don't actually have to just move to a farm in order mm-hmm. to be in touch with God. Okay. And and now I think that the big one that we, that we want to really open up here is, uh, is the invitation to the contemplative life, yes. which some people are inclined to think is reserved only for the few reserved only for religious, right. uh, belongs only to monks and sisters, but that, but that's not father Haggerty. No, no. Um, so you could, could you open us up a little bit in this conversation, maybe diving a bit into his book, the contemplative hunger, mm-hmm. uh, to think about how father Haggerty, uh, would address this question, um, this false belief that that people would believe that a contemplative life, a vibrant life of prayer is reserved only for the few. Yeah. And I think this is drawing out of his priesthood and experience of being in New York City, mm-hmm. it, you know, uh, the city that never sleeps, right? It's always active. It's all, there's no rest. It's the rat race city, all of these things where it really pushes one towards this exhaustion of activity. And what Father Haggerty says is something completely different. He's like, actually, we as human beings made in the image and likeness of God are actually not called to an active life. We're called to a contemplative life. And he says that through our baptism, we're initiated into this. And what we need right now is because we live in this like society that is uber active. And so those that used to go out to the farms to escape the hustle and bustle of a city now they go out to the farms to escape the hustle bustle of city, but the city hunts them down through social media and all these things. And so the activity is actually always present, always everywhere now. Mm-hmm. And he's like, this is the deep need in our, uh, in our humanity, but also via our baptism is to contemplate the mysteries of God in the very face of God. That's what our baptism is about. It initiates us, it draws us in. So each and every one of us then is to live a contemplative life. And it's not for those elites. It's not for the ones that run into the cloister. It's not for those who go uh, and, and kind of separate themselves for others or have achieved, you know, they've leveled up. Like I'm a level 57 contemplative now. It's like, no, no, no. You are baptized into Jesus Christ and you too are to contemplate his mysteries and his mercy and his face for the rest of eternity. So you can do that even in the midst of a city or even in the midst of a hectic world. So he talks about it as being like a, um, what's he say? A contemplative like revolution mm. is that each and every baptized person to lean into a contemplative life is the invitation that Christ makes to us. Yeah. This, this idea that the contemplative life is a revolution is really important to consider. So this, this is from page 29 in the book. It's a couple of lines here that, that, that are extremely powerful. Contemplative life, Father Haggerty says, contemplative life, even in its concealed quality, may be the most powerful adversary to the tides of secularism undermining religious Mm -hmm. belief in our modern times. Mm -hmm. Yet few people, even of a serious religious temperament, realize this. The ordinary response in the struggle with unbelief is to do battle against it with argumentation and visible witness taking up arms in the public forum. We expect, for instance, strong opposition from leaders in the church to the secular disregard for moral values. But it may be that the invisible effect of a great turning to God in a personal life of prayer is the strongest antidote against the secular disparagement of Christian faith. 
yeah <laughs> let's go <laughs> like i don't know if that doesn't like get you amped up like that's the locker room speech i want to hear before you go into the fourth quarter of a tie game you know like that's what i want right there is like yeah you know what i think there's a certain understanding is like we we feel the pressures of secularism we we feel the pressures of uh a, a, not even an agnostic but like an atheistic world now that has taken over we've gone out of the era of Christendom. We're in fully the era of the apostolic age to reference another book that I love. Um, but what is the antidote to that? And he's saying, it's not this argumentation. You, you can't really say like, we're going to beat people into submission and then they will believe it's actually the individual conversion of each one of us. And this is drawing back to St. John Paul II, the universal call to holiness. And it's the conversions of each and every person. And that is itself, that quiet conversion, that quiet conviction of the holiness that Christ invites each one of us to, that's going to be the revolution right there. And to not be afraid of that. And maybe this doesn't play out in the public square. And maybe the public square is going to get a little more dicier and, and things like that. But a true, um, we were both at a conference up at Providence College recently. And, um, who was it? it was Fran Meyer who, who was speaking and he said like, yeah, these culture wars, like the way to battle that culture war, because somebody would ask him that question, like, how do we fight the cultural wars that are happening? And he said, don't cheat on your wife. <laughs> and I just remember that, like, just as a shocking response. And it was so beautiful. He says, mm -hmm. like, we have to interiorly be converted to God and live a holiness within our lives. And that has that ripple effect that has then this kind of stark difference that we see the divide happening more and more. And we can do that via our baptisms. Like you don't have to wait for accreditation in any other theology, spirituality or things like that. But it's this constant conversion that is the invitation. So, yeah, to combat the rise of secularism is to remind yourself that we are called to contemplate the face of God for the rest of eternity. That's our destination. And we can begin that now. There's nothing that says we can't start this now. And it doesn't matter our circumstances that we can enter into that. So sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going off uh, so long, but like there are certain circumstances over life that we can think that are create a greater disposition to a contemplative life. Right. 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 Somebody then wants to separate themselves. They go out into, let's say, a religious life, a caramel that is cloistered, that has a schedule, that has dedicated time, because that is the most conducive way to, to the contemplative life. While somebody else says, like, I work a nine to five and actually my it's busy season, it's harvest season in my, my job. And so now I'm working 70, 80, 90 hours a week and I have a family to take care of. How can I be a contemplative in that? And this is where Father Haggerty really comes in and starts to give us some of these aspects to say, no, you, you're not exempt from the contemplative life. Right, right. You're actually still called to that. And he encourages people to it. Right. So one of the, one of the aspects of this that he, that he, uh, that he calls us to, right. We, we don't get off the hook, even though we're living in the city is silence. Yeah. So, so silence for Father Haggerty is an essential part of the contemplative life. Can you say a little bit about, a little bit about that, a little bit about the treatment of silence? Yeah. So what he talks about, he kind of keeps referring to it as I think even the chapter is called the allure of silence. Right. And he says there's this attractiveness in an uber active lifestyle and uber active life and in, in city. We have this constant uh, overindulgence of noise. 
Right. And that's auto audio noise. That is physical noise. That is visual noise. That is all of these other things. That's also the kind of like, I, I, this is me just thinking even the financial noise of saying like, I have to be investing. I have to be creating financial security for my future generations. Like that's a certain type of pressure and noise that then crowds out everything else. And he says that the importance is to be able to enter into that noise and he calls it the hardest task of of modern man is to sit in the silence and that is to turn off notifications off and sit in that to enter into the silence and he says and yet that's what our hearts cry out for right and so even it's difficult even though as you don't know how to do it and there's this constant way to like okay i'm going to enter into prayer but i need to read something i need to be sketching i need to be journaling and it's like just be like it's a hard task, but there's something in our soul that is attractive to us. You know, when you've been so overindulgent to sit in the silence is attractive and it has this allure to you. So here's some tough words to make it even more difficult. Yeah. Uh, because the, these, these slap. <laughs> in prayer, our attraction to silence corresponds ordinarily to our desire to love. Mm-hmm. In as much as the desire to love permeates our awareness more strongly, our mind wants to think less. This link between silence and love is a grace and not something we can achieve by effort. So what are we supposed to do with that? Yeah, it's I mean, to think about that, like we I think it's um, it's a diagnostic. Mm. Okay. the way that I see that and it's been helpful for me is like. Can you go to a church or a chapel that has the blessed sacrament there? You are in Jesus's presence and can you sit there and be at peace for, I'll challenge you, seven minutes? And it's like, oh my gosh, I don't think I can do that. You know, eternity. Yeah, it feels forever. And it's like, it is... It's so beautiful to hear that connection between our ability to rest in the silence, to have repose in the silence, in the presence of God, is a marker of our love. Um, I know, I, I, see, I see it often when I go to the hospital and I get a call for the hospital. And whether it's somebody that's end of life or just coming out of a surgery, their spouse or their, their loved one, often I walk into the room and there's nobody saying a thing. There's somebody suffering there, a spouse, and yet they're able to just sit there in the silence and be with each other. And that's, that's deep love. Mm. You know, they don't need to fill that void and they can just be with each other because of a true love. So I think when he's talking about it in this context is to not be afraid to use that even as a diagnostic for ourselves. Have I lost my love for God and attached it to all these other things in my life that when I go to the chapel, that's all that I can think of. Now, truth be told, we will be distracted like this is part of our human frailty. We will get distracted at times. But if we if we can't sit there in the presence of love itself, God, who is love, then we've lost, we've become so attached. And so it can be a diagnostic for us to say, like, do I actually love God? Mm. How much do I love? Him? Right. Right. Well, if this all feels too abstract, he makes some great observations in the book. Um, so by by way of conclusion, I want to read a passage here that kind of sketches out mm-hmm. what Father Haggerty says the contemplative life can look like. So, so, so what is, what is this supposed, what is this supposed to look like? How do we describe it? He writes, 
In a certain manner, it is the task of contemplative life to gaze courageously into the silence of the night, sometimes the dry, windless, barren night, and yet refuse to be intimidated. When the night when the night is for the moment all the soul has, it ought to seek no more favorable time for meeting God. When accepted and welcomed, the night itself becomes the path of pilgrimage toward his unseen light. Sometimes these nights are long and seem endless, but in a true contemplative life, there is no stopping, no halting, no rest sought even in the strained hours. Yet some nights are difficult, as every contemplative soul knows, when one's offering for others has vivid clarity, and these nights bring a contentment like the shine of a full moon on an open field. All right, so extremely poetic. You know, when he's talking about the night, he's referring, of course, to the to the great tradition of the the dark night of the soul coming mm-hmm, from St. Mm-hmm. John on the Cross and the Carmelite tradition, meaning that the night is, is the, the period of darkness where you're not aware of how fruitful your prayer is, the, the kind of period of prayer where you feel extremely dry, where it doesn't feel productive, um, where you're more distractive than you are attentive, where you're more restless than at rest. Okay. And yet he's insisting that in order to live that fully contemplative life, even in the night, you have to remain committed to it. Yeah. Can you say a few words about the power of commitment in Father Haggerty's vision for the, the contemplative life? It it has this beautiful resonance with an, with another contemporary spiritual author that we've done an episode on is Father Jacques Philippe mm. and his Father Jacques Philippe and what we see in Father Haggerty is okay. Well, how do you how do you live this contemplative life? And he says, well, the, in order to live a contemplative life, you got to freaking show up. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you have to be committed to keep going and. Um, I love how Father Haggerty presents it and says to maybe get into those places where it dries up, it's discouraging and it feels like it's not fruitless and you feel like you're spinning your tires and all these other things. It's like you're not making any positive movement. But he says you can stare into that darkness courageously and not be intimidated. And I think that's one of the things that this is what fear does. Fear lives in intimidation. Fear tells you that this is the end of the road. You've done it. Everything that led up to this doesn't matter because you never really made progress because you can't get any further. It tries to destroy everything, but perfect love casts out all fear. And so you continue, you can stand in that darkness. You can stand face to face with that fear. You can look at a world that has gone chaotic. You can look at a world that is exhausting because of its activity and you can stand in that place to be desiring and in, in living a contemplative life and not be intimidated because of the courageous like nature of a contemplative life. And he even goes further to talk about the self-sacrifice and the fruitfulness that contemplative life demands a total sacrifice of self and a surrender. Mm. But that provides fruit. It gives new life. And so it's cyclical in that sense that it's going to continually push us to give more of ourselves. But that then is it is fruitful in so many essences. So what we do is we stand with great courage. And so that there's whatever those moments may be, no matter how long they may be or how persistent they may be or whatever it is, that the contemplative is the one who courageously stands and looks into the darkness, looks into the void, maybe looks into fear's eyes and says, I will not be intimidated because I have known love itself. Like I've, I've encountered the, the source of love and I will persevere. 
So we've been talking a lot about Father Haggerty's book, The Contemplative Hunger. He's got a few other books. And in the, the time that remains, I think it's worth saying a few books, a few books, a few words <laughs> about his book on conversion. Yes. Yes. That's a sentence, Father Patrick. Good job. So a few words about his book on conversion. So mm-hmm. maybe Father Joseph Anthony, can you open can you open that work up for us? What is it? What is his book on conversion fundamentally about? Okay, so this is getting back to. I know we don't have much um, time left, so we can't totally dive into all aspects of it. But the book on conversion I found extremely helpful for my life, um, and it's the the main thesis of it is that each and every Christian has basically two conversions in their life. You have your initial conversion, which is this deep encounter with God, and as we know with uh, uh, the nature of all conversions is that it's a turning to God and a turning away from sin. Right. And so there's this initial conversion where it's this essential encounter with God that kind of then sets us on this path and uh, it can be a major kind of radical moment, or it can be a little more ordinary and kind of a slow burn. Right. But I think for each of us, we can point to an encounter with God and say like, Oh, that's where I really personally encounter God, have a deep faith now that there's this initial point. So that, that has to exist for all of us. But then from that point on is daily constant conversions. That is not one and done. So he helps to reframe the mentality of conversions instead of saying I had a conversion and maybe my conversion wasn't radical and that doesn't make it less than you who had a radical conversion. Mine was a little slow, slow burn. I was born into, I was a cradle Catholic or things like that. But he says that there's also then this constant conversion that has to happen on the daily life. And so to live with the mentality of, okay, I've, I woke, I woke up today. I have another 24 hours. How am I going to turn towards God and turn away from sin? Like that's the challenge. And it goes back to our baptism. So this is a big thing with Haggerty is he builds upon the baptismal identity, which is another reason I love him because it's very Don Marmion-esque and all these other things. But um, this book on conversion really begins to break that down, helps us to understand how active and persistent the mercy of God is, um, how it a conversion leads us into a poverty of spirit in the Beatitudes. Um, and it helps us to even understand our daily growth in the spiritual life is built upon a constant daily conversion that takes place. So I, f- I found that's been very, very helpful for me. Also, he has a great uh, chapter on the con- daily conversion of priests, which mm. I thought was very good. But yeah, simplicity and, and, and all of those understandings of quote unquote second conversions is what the majority of the book is about. Good. So we've been talking this episode about Father Donald Haggerty. We referred to his books, The Contemplative Hunger, and conversion, both of which are Ignatius press books. He has others. Um, definitely worth diving into Father Haggerty's work and allowing his wisdom as a spiritual guide to help mm. form and shape you. Do you have any last words of encouragement for people that might be jumping in? Which book would you recommend to start? Um, he has a contemplative hunger, the contemplative provocations, I believe was his first book. Um, he has another one called like more contemplative provocations, I, something along those lines and then conversions. And he keeps writing like he has new ones. I think the book on conversion is the place to begin. Mm. So, so if the I, reverse of what we did in the episode. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know how that is. It's good. Um, but yeah, I really do think that the, the book on conversion is a place to begin because it helps to reset that sense. Like, actually, I need to be living from this place of 
repeated second conversions. And then from there, then I can enter into this understanding of a contemplative life and contemplating the face of God, um, no matter where I am, no matter what my circumstances may be. Fantastic. Well, two quick announcements by way of conclusion of this episode. First, join the Dominican Friars and all of our friends spiritually, if not in person, here in Washington, D.C. at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception for the first annual Dominican Rosary Pilgrimage, which is going to be an extremely exciting event. Please pray for the preacher, for Father Gregory, (laughs) who's going to deliver a few conferences. Please pray that all the organization of the event will go smoothly and that many souls will be drawn more deeply in love with Our Lady through the preaching of the rosary. We, we really have high hopes for, for that event and what it will do for the life of the church. And we are also happy to announce and to inform and encourage people to check out our upcoming young adult retreat, which is going to take place this November. There's more information about that at the God's Planning website. So check it out to find details for our young adult retreat, which is going to be held in Malvern, retreat house outside of Philadelphia. Um, Otherwise, thanks in a special way to all of you who support us via Patreon for the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, there's information about how to do so in the show notes. Please like and subscribe to God's Planning on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the Snapchat. No, no, the Snapchat, uh, the TikTok. Yeah, the tactic. And uh, any place where there's stuff going on, God's planning is there. (laughs) Leave a five-star review of the show, um, especially if you tune in via Apple. That really helps people find the podcast. The ratings matter. And we love hearing your comments. We love hearing from you. It encourages us in the work. We're most grateful, however, for your prayers. Please pray for us and know that we're praying for you. God bless. God bless.